Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Adam, we are back. Oh, thank God. It's been a long, long summer, Adam, this year, man. But we're back. We're here to talk movies. It's still 2020. What's that? Yeah. It's still 2020. Here we are. I cannot. This year is just unrelenting. But we are here to talk movies and theology and do a little catch-up. And talk about what we've been watching during this summer of this long and unrepentant year. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam. I'm the minister at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Man, how's Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania doing, Adam? Well, the building's here. The congregation is largely online. But we are actually doing really well and uh, considering the state of the world right now. So I'm grateful to to be here serving this church. And yeah, how's the University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas, man? It's the same thing. We've got the building is more or less empty except for a food pantry that runs out of there. But the congregation is alive and well. We've got some folks moving around and leaving town to go be with parents elsewhere because now all of a sudden where you are doesn't matter at all. And so you may as well be with your family and support them. So we're, our congregation's kind of going everywhere, but we're we're doing well. Awesome. Uh, uh, so, Adam, we are not going to talk about one movie today. It's been too long and we have too many thoughts and we've been stuck in our houses for too many weeks. So here's the plan. We're going to do a little catch up. And here are the categories I would like to propose to you. First... I want to hear about a new movie that you loved that was released during the pandemic. Not a lot of options there because theaters have been pretty (laughs) shut down. But, you know, Netflix has been doing some stuff and elsewhere. Second, I want to hear about a movie that you have turned to for comfort during the pandemic. Third, I want to hear about a movie that is helping you interpret the world during this mess of a season. And finally, in our normal postlude fashion, I want to hear about something else that you are watching or following that is sparking your imagination. Sound good? Sound like a plan? I love it. I can answer all these questions. All right. So talk to me. First category, movies released during the pandemic. Tell me something. All right. So originally, I think I would have said Mulan. And I was intending to watch it this weekend. Uh, and then neither my children nor my wife were in any position to watch a movie, and I couldn't justify paying thirty dollars, right, on top of my already Disney <laughs> Disney Plus subscription, right, to pay for this movie to watch it by myself, right. And so I had to sort of rack my brain for a couple of others. Here are the runners up, Matt. The first, and I think this came out during the pandemic. This is gives you this some insight into the state of my mind right now, which is I can barely remember what happened uh, last week, let alone, you know, back in April. Uh, but the runners up, 
the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt Choose Your Own Adventure movie on Netflix. Did you watch this? I have not watched it. We kind of wandered okay. away from that show somewhere in the second season, I think, and I haven't quite gotten back to that it. Is, that's okay. I don't blame you for that at all. It it has a lot of heart. It it has that sort of Tina Fey feel from you know the early two thousands, and uh, and if you're into that, it works. Um, what makes it interesting is that it is one of those Netflix uh, movies where you can sort of choose uh-huh. which part of the movie you're going to watch next, and uh, and then it incorporates all of the uh, the sort of tropes of choose your own adventure books right. into the choose your own adventure movie. Um, it was a an opportunity for me to spend two nights with the movie instead of one, and therefore I was grateful for it. I don't remember the pro- plot. I don't remember much about it. It made me laugh at the time. Uh, entirely um, like edible for a couple of nights as I try and figure out what to watch. So I, I appreciate that. The second runner-up is also a, a little bit of trifle. It was the Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Did you watch this? Absolutely. The day it came out. <laughs> this is Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams um, with really bad Icelandic accents participating in the Eurovision Song Contest, which is a sort of like choose like a, a American Idol type of, uh, of contest among countries in Europe, Israel, and also Australia, apparently. Um, and they and it is huge in Europe. And this idea somehow got into Will Ferrell's mind that he wanted to make a movie about participating in the Eurovision <laughs> Song Contest. It has singing in it. It has dancing in it. It has bad Icelandic accents. It has Will Ferrell doing Will Ferrell things. Uh, again, another one of those movies that you can just kind of you can spend a night with. The next day you'll be like, hey, I want to hear that song again. And then you'll see, you'll forget that song and never realize that you ever have to listen to it again. I, I want to point out two things. One is Rachel McAdams is great in this movie and is generally She's underappreciated really as a comedic lead. And is doing a lot of work in a whole bunch of movies, including this one, to kind of bolster everything and hold it together. Secondly... I dispute your claim that those songs are forgettable. Yaya yeah, yeah, Ding Dong is still in my head, and it's in your head now that I've mentioned it. So, all right, go on. Um, but you're right. Rachel McAdams is, like, by force of will, holds this movie together and allows Will Ferrell to do whatever he wants. And so it's it's worth your time. Okay. The movie that I enjoyed perhaps most... Uh, stars the person who has become my favorite actor. And I should have known that she should have been my favorite actor back in Mad Max, where she is easily the most charismatic person in the movie, not to mention the fact that ever since, she continues to just make hits and bangers that I love to watch. Longshot is incredible. Um, Charlize Theron deserves all the awards. She's amazing. And she teamed up with... Gina Prince-Bythewood, and they made this movie called Old Guard, which is based on a comic book, but it's not a comic book that I'm familiar with or ever read. And it's basically a movie about a group of immortal soldiers who go around trying to save the world from terrible things that are happening. And they don't know why they were chosen to be immortal, but someday they just kind of woke up immortal and then 
at some point they just kind of die. And that's the premise of the movie. And of course, there's some sort of MacGuffin that they have to save in order to, um, you know, to like drive the plot. And there's always a new character who has just become immortal and didn't know that she was. And she has to sort of move into this group of immortal soldiers. Part of the reason I really like this is that in this movie are, I think, some pretty interesting questions about about duty and memory and about the ways in which our past experiences are the things that drive us into feeling obligated to act today. And um, in addition to that, the movie has, a, I think, some really interesting ideas around uh, apprenticeship as this new soldier, super immortal soldier sort of moves into this group of soldiers. She has to contend with what she brings uniquely to this group, but how does she also fit in with this long history of their um, of their advocacy in the world? But really, it's a story about ancestors. It's a story about the true terror of the world, which is that experience and wisdom dies with each generation. And so one of the things that I think we as human beings really want and really desire is that we would have groups of people with whom we could sort of like have as keepers of the memory so that they could be the moral arbiters of what's right and what's wrong because we recognize that the complications of our world are so great that we need groups of people who can tell us what's right, who can try and advocate because they know because they've been around. And um, in, in many ways, it's kind of an All Saints movie. Yeah. Because it's a movie that... Um, that is trying to lean back into the ancestors to help us understand what we need to know. But even more than that, I think it's, it's asking questions about how do we preserve the future for the ones who are to come? How, how do we um, not let the world get so obsessed with the present moment that it scorches the earth for everything to come after it? So that's, yeah, so the old guard, I really liked it. Yeah, and I'll probably watch it again. What'd you think? Yeah, it's so good. I I I thought it was. I mean, in addition to all of the uh, very beautifully nuanced ruminations that you've presented, this movie is also just kicks ass, right? I mean, it's it's such a good tight action movie. Uh, Gina Prince Bythewood is just on point putting this thing together, and I it's it's so smooth. It's just butter smooth. Uh, I I know it's setting up sequels it's obviously setting up sequels and you don't even mind. I'm just, I was, it was one of those where like I saw them setting up sequels and also I was just thrilled to watch them do it. Cause that meant I was going to get to come back. Um, I haven't gone to read the comics. I kind of want to now it's just, it's a, it's a short series. It's a limited run comic series. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I just enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, and it just has that, it's that sweet spot for me of, and Mad Max is similar, right? Of like, really banging action movie that has just enough work going on underneath where you can pretend like you're having an intellectual experience but actually you're still just enjoying the pure adrenaline of it and so yeah i i, I loved every second yeah I, you're in good hands like I, yeah. at no point did i feel as if i had to like begin to question either the actors the director or the script with respect about where we were about to go and even if it telegraphs itself and even if it has some of the sort of typical action tropes, um, it felt comforting more than it felt predictable. Yeah, 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 sure. 
I, and there's this also the thing that I, I I've actually thought a lot about lately is these are warriors, so to speak, who are able to like they all have like big guns and they use those big guns, but they all carry like axes and knives and swords with them <laughs> still, which is a cool kind of like trope of the movie. Like, oh, but it, it was a really interesting I think meditation on the sort of analog and digital worlds about like, what do we preserve as the technology that we continue to bring into the future? Because it works, because we don't need electricity to do it, because it's not overly complicated, because it has as a tool, a sort of deep simplicity to it that, um, that we need to preserve because the world is so complicated. And because things are complicated, they're gonna go wrong eventually. And you know what's helpful when things go wrong? Just a big battle axe. Right. Like, like not a gun, an axe. Like, and and so the that that movement between the digital and the analog in this movie actually it's made some sort of like thematic sense to me. And I think about it a lot too. I we put in uh, in our house we put a wood burning stove, in some part as a reaction to the fact that like a pandemic. <laughs> It. And we were like, are we going to have electricity to heat a house in the middle of a Pennsylvania winter? Um, maybe we should just burn wood. <laughs> and I have to say, like, the ability to just burn a fire in my home, um, albeit in a quite technical wood burning stove, has has given me a, a not just a fair amount of pleasure, but like um, comfort. Sure. Yeah. What about you? So my runner up, uh, my runner up in this, the movie I thought I was going to talk about in this segment for a while is the Andy Samberg, Kristen Malati, uh, movie Palm Springs, which has been on Hulu this summer. Uh, this is, uh, Andy Samberg and Kristen Malati are, are in a, the, the pitch is very obvious. This is Groundhog Day made into a fully fleshed romantic comedy where we meet Andy Samberg, who has been living the same day of his friend's wedding reception uh, at a resort in Palm Springs over and over and over and over. Andy Samberg, as you can imagine, plays guy stuck in a time loop who has given up very, very, very well. Um, and Krista Malati sh shows up. They uh, have a very romantic evening at this wedding reception together. And then by chance of fate, she ends up falling into the same trap. And so now they are stuck in a time loop together and have to solve things as a couple. What I find really interesting about this, in addition to like the dead-on performances by Sandberg and Malati, is that the critique of Groundhog Day that I think you could make is that it sort of stinks as a romantic comedy, that it's really a movie about Bill Murray's own middle-aged white man crisis, and, Andy, and um, Andy McDowell is sort of objectified within that. Whereas this movie is about Sandberg and Malati wrestling together and figuring out a relationship together that eventually involves her managing to convince quantum theorists to get on Skype with her to talk about physics. I loved it. Um, my actual winner, it's a little bit of a cheat because I'm not sure it would fall under the feature film category, but my actual winner is the Netflix documentary Speed Cubers. This is 40 minutes long, so it doesn't feel like a feature film, but it in some ways presents like a feature film. And it's my show, so I'm going to pick the one I want. 
And 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 this will be a theme through all of through many of my picks. One of my rubrics right now has been things I can pleasurably watch with a nine year old boy in my house, uh, and the things that we can do together to spend time. And this thing was the not the most time occupying one, but one of the most beautiful ones. Speed Cubers is a documentary about the world of competitive Rubik's cube solving, uh, and which is a thing. Yeah, which is a thing. Um, first of all, man, these folks are really fast. I have personally never solved a Rubik's Cube in my life, and I have no idea how. So it's all sort of mind-boggling to me. Uh, in theory, this is about the rivalry between the two top solvers of the last decade, an Australian man named Felix Zemdegs and an American named Max Park, both of whom are young. I mean, this is clearly a young person's game by time people are... As, as at one point, Felix says, kind of, by time you start having a job, you don't have time to practice enough to keep the ridiculous times to be competitive. Except that it's not quite a, a a rivalry on equal footing. Felix is a bit older. He was on the scene first. He dominates for years. And then Max comes up underneath him. And two things to know about Max that the movie sort of unfolds in beautiful ways. The first is that he's severely autistic. And the second is that he has idolized Felix. And in fact, watching Felix emerge as this Rubik's Cube prodigy is one of the things that allowed Max to begin to interpret the world around him and begin to engage the world around him. Max idolizes Felix. And once Max comes on the scene as this incredible cuber in his own way, Felix's response is to lift to lift up and support Max in all of these beautiful ways. Mm -hmm. So he sees this kid who is sort of hero worshiping him and he starts getting on the phone with him after every tournament and saying, you did amazing and starts creating a friendship with the kid who was going to come up and really unseat him. So this is a really incredible movie because I think it's about how we uplift one another. And I think about it for congregations, like you want to talk about supporting outcasts or welcoming strangers or loving folks with disabilities, about what mutual relationships look like across races or continents or ages or levels of ability. Like I think speed cubers should be on the top of your list for things to help you interpret what those kind of ministries are. Cause it takes, cause in the midst of this hyper competitive thing, there's something really beautiful. And I, 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 I loved it. So that's that's my pick for new yeah, stuff. Yeah, it sounds it sounds amazing. It in some ways it sounds like the antidote to King of Kong. Do you remember that documentary? Yeah, it's it in many ways it is the antidote to King of Kong. I mean the I think the Rubik's Cube scene is it it doesn't have quite the um it, it doesn't have that kind of weird edge that the hardcore video game record scene can have. Like there's the something there's something it, a little yeah. bit pure about this from the get go, um, but yeah, I I hear that too, um, and the personalities here, and I'm sure it's documentarian spin as well, at least as it relates to like the the surrounding scene. But man, Felix and Max just come off as as folks that um, we could learn a lot from. Oh, that sounds awesome. So let's move on. Things that you went to for comfort during the pandemic. So tell me a movie that you just went to to wrap yourself in it like a blanket. So like you, I, I a lot of my watching is 
dictated by a not nine-year-old boy, but a seven-year-old boy. And um, and I've actually had a, a number of opportunities to suggest movies during this time that he, that my son Elliot is, um, is dead set against. And is like, no, I'm not going to watch that. That seems stupid. And then I have to do this little dance where I'm like, no, we are going to watch it. So I pull full rank on him. Right. And because I know the movie's awesome and I know he's going to love it, but he just doesn't, he doesn't want to watch it. And so I pull rank on him and then we start watching it. And about three quarters of the way through the movie, he turns to me and goes, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have to say is one of the more delightful feelings. Sure. As a parent. Yeah. Uh, at least for me, it's something where um, I, I look at it and I think, oh, I love, I, I love being able to turn my kid on. And one of the things, and Christy does this a little bit too, but she's not as much into that as, as I am because I'm the one who thinks about movies all the time. Um, but she was like, you know what we should watch with Elliot? And, and I said, what? Like, this is not your job. This is my job. And she said, uh, the princess bride. And yep. I was like, yeah, you're right. We should watch that. So we did. And, um, in it, I don't think I have to tell people it holds up like tremendously. Yeah. Not only is it like it is a tight 90 minutes. It moves quick. There's no there's no waste. The the characters come in and out. They um, it's still funny to me. My uh, a seven year old will love sore fights and he's been sword fighting with his brother over and over again. The idea that both of them are fighting left-handed and then spring that on each other has delighted him uh-huh. to no end. Um, and, and so he, he was all in within like 15 to 20 minutes of it and, and got it and thought it was really funny. I think for me, what I really loved about it is, you know, it's really, you know, gets prefaced as this is a story about true love. And it is, you know, Buttercup and Wesley are the are the love story. But really, it's a story about teamwork. Yeah. It's a story about building coalitions. And it's about the power of people who have mission, who care, who um, are persistent and are decent and principled. Uh, and really a story about what drives us to press into our better natures in the face of terror and evil. Um, and the thing that I had forgotten that became very clear to me was that the machinations of the evil prince um, are really about um, trying to start a war with another kingdom, yeah. which I had forgotten, that the whole plot turns on trying to start this war with another kingdom, and that's ultimately why he's trying to marry Buttercup, because while being beautiful, she's entirely expendable because she's a peasant. Because she can she can be sacrificed in order to start this war that people will profit off of. And the heroes of the story, Wesley, Inigo, Fezzik, um, they have this decency that's really winning. And they aren't ever malevolent. And they're put in these troubling situations, but they're essentially honorable. Um, and given the state of our, of our nation right now and the state of the world, like that felt deeply comforting to me to return to a story where... There are machinations and there are things that are going wrong and there are people who are malevolent. But there are people who are working, who are incredibly decent 
and maybe they're not all working in the same purpose, but they're able to build a coalition to meet the to meet the goals that they each have. And some of them are just really nice. Like the whole, I think the genius of the Fezzik character, the Andrea the Giant character, is that he just seems to be very kind. Even though he's huge, he's a giant. So we watched this, and it was only like a, like a week later that the you know the Wisconsin right. Uh, DNC or the, the the Wisconsin Democrats put together this reading of the original cast and I wasn't able to see it. I like, I didn't even realize it was happening, but I did see photos of it. And number one, the photos of Billy Crystal reprising his, his role as Miracle Max. He has like, he's like wearing costume. There's that. And then to see Robin Wright, who is as beautiful now as right. she was then in some like crazy way. And she happened to be sitting in front of a window while she was doing this. So there's like this golden light on her the entire time. <laughs> it was like totally ridiculous, but it also sort of stood up. Um, and, um, and it was one of those moments where I was like, I re I, I've watched so many movies that just do not age well. Right. They're just like, <laughs> They're not, they're not, there's some parts that cr make you cringe. There's not a really a lot in this movie that ever makes you cringe. Yeah, that's good. We, we, we watched that, uh, we watched that with, with Charlie, I don't know, four or five months ago too. And it definitely worked for him and it held up. It's never been like, it's never been sacred to me in the way that it has been to some of my, some folks in our generation, but it was totally pleasurable to rewatch. And I think the, I mean, the, the Wisconsin Dems pulled in millions off of that fundraiser, which I think says something about the traction of that film and the popular imagination. So I'm not surprised at all. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? What was the one that gave you comfort? Um, well, the, the real answer to this is, uh, uh, is not a movie. The real answer to this is that Charlie and I have been um, watching... I've just finished our both of our first watches of Avatar The Last Airbender uh, after it came to Netflix, uh, which I never watched in its original airing on Nickelodeon in the 2000s and um, have wanted to for a while. And it falls squarely in the category of like things that I thought Charlie would like and we have watched together, made even more special by two things, one of which is that, uh, that it's exceptionally good. And the other one being that I had not watched it, so it was new for both of us, which mm. was was a kind of beautiful thing and an exception to the, like, right. dad creates a curriculum of all of your pop culture education <laughs> that, that otherwise happens around this house. That's um, largely based in the 80s and 90s. Right, yeah. Uh, so, but, but I could do, like... I'm ready to start the Avatar Last Airbender podcast, which I, which I know there are, like, 40 already, so not doing that. The, the, the movie answer to this question... Um, and I think listeners to the show who heard us talk about Apollo 13 in the spring will not be surprised by this, but the, the, the movie answer to this question for me is, uh, is the 2015 film The Martian, where uh, Matt Damon gets stranded on Mars and everyone has to go rescue him. Uh, I, I think about this movie, the more I think about this movie, the more it kind of feels like West Wing in space. And since I love all of those words, it's kind of no surprise that it is comforting to me. So you have like the drama and the desperation and isolation of astronaut Mark Watney after an accident strands him behind on Mars and the rest of his team is on their way back to Earth believing that he's been left for dead. 
and there's a bit of Mark's life on Mars that has like a quarantine vibe to it. Like you're built, <laughs> you're building a wood stove, and he's resourcefully planting a whole potato garden inside a tent. Um, but you also have the stories of the, this incredible cooperation and resilience and imagination of NASA and Mark's teammates to get back and rescue him once they realize he's alive. So it does that West Wing thing where it generates conflict between a bunch of really intelligent, well-intentioned people. It's, there's like a this kind of the liberal's fantasy of what what the, what an antagonist looks like, uh, which means it's both a total fairy tale and also kind of geek popcorn to me. So this is this world that the the NASA that. Um, that goes and rescues Mark Watney is clearly the world that I want to live in. Mm -hmm. I, I want to work in that office with those people. I, I want to live in a country that works like that, which is why I think it feels like total comfort. Of course, I have a similar relationship and I understand the problems of it with West Wing, but then when you add astronauts in space into it, it just um, turns up the dial for me. So I think that's Yeah, and like the crazy like charisma total. of Matt Damon. Yeah. That movie also wins an award for the best use of the single F-bomb allowed by the PG-13 rating, I think, in, <laughs> in movie history, as far as I'm aware. So I commend it to you for your comfort needs, if only for that. Yeah, I, that's a movie, too, where it, it, it's able to blend the personalities of everybody really well, too, from the weird to the, like, the hyper-competent, the type A to the, you know, the nerdy scientist it, it it does it really well and in, in building this ecosystem of of difference in order like all aligned in some positive direction yeah yeah and i i understand that like actual offices don't usually work like that but man it just feels like catnip so yeah agreed all right before we move on matt let's talk about our partnership with the christian century we want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. There's always good stuff that's going on there right now. The um, Lately, it's been really helpful to have some of their um, their lectionary resources that get sent to my inbox every Monday. And I encourage you to all to sign up for that if those would be valuable. Also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right. Next category, Matt. What is the movie that you watched that you thought spoke to the situation of our current world? There's so many situations of our current world. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Which one would you like to pick? Um, because we took this summer off, we're a little bit late to the discourse on this particular pick, but I don't want to let it go totally unmentioned. And it, even though it was very much making the film Twitter rounds earlier in the year, uh, because I don't think no, I don't think any movie speaks quite to the intersection of public health and civic leadership that COVID has presented, quite like Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Um, I am not as much of a Jaws person as some. I, I in some ways prefer later Spielberg a little bit to early Spielberg, and I know that's uh, heresy in some circles. I think some You're of big, it's... big, big warhorse fan, huh? <laughs> I think some of its sequences are astounding, and I think the pacing on the whole is a little odd at times. But the first half of this movie is about whether civic leaders should open public spaces in light of a massive threat to human health and well-being. 
It's about whether you open the beaches with a shark in the water. And and to rewatch it, as, as I did in June or July at some point, you see all the same responses that we've seen from our own civic leaders. You see denial of the science. You see just general cowardice of leadership. You see a prioritization of business profits over the lives of real people. And you see in the crowds on the beaches the same sort of scattered reaction that we've had to our whole leadership this whole time. Like, I want to go to the beach, but I'm not sure I want to get in the water. And then, like, the, the kind of crowd mentality around what it is to reacclimate to those spaces and what feels safe and what feels appropriate and the role of actual evidence versus public opinion and just zeitgeist and boredom all wrapped into one. Unfortunately, of course, the, the coronavirus isn't a shark, and so it can't be taken down by one surly, drunken crew. But the first half of this movie is an eerie watch in 2020, and if you haven't had a chance to revisit it, I really do recommend it. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly, you know, prescient. It, it's, its ability to forecast the like the language that is used to talk about this stuff is remarkable and i mean there are a couple of moments in that movie that just feel like pulled straight from our world like the fact that they catch this other shark and say like oh everything is safe now right yeah, yeah, yeah. right like this 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 idea that you have solved it or you have found some measure of solution that gives people some confidence that they don't have to be as vigilant any longer um, it like all of it is is really brilliant, and I and I think it's interesting to see that like the uh, the Roy Scheider, the um, Richard Dreyfus character, and and Quint the who's who's the actor's name is uh, Robert Shaw. Um, the characters like there's there's like the soldier, there's the police officer, and the scientist, right? Like, and they're all trying to sort of figure out how to solve this problem, and if anything. It's a little bit like The Martian, where, like, from a comforting standpoint, which is like, hey, get three competent people in a room and maybe, maybe they'll be able to solve the problem. And the problem of our world is it's really hard to get three competent people in a room, or maybe in like important rooms. So yeah, and to give them and to give them the authority that they need to do what needs to be done. Right. Yeah. What about you, Adam? What is helping you interpret the world? I want to draw people's attention to uh, as a maybe it, it just came and went. I just think it it was kind of uh, it was a documentary that uh, that came out not long ago, and uh, it's on HBO, and it's a, a documentary about the history of the Apollo Theater, uh, which I think uh, is actually really worth your time. It actually it won an Emmy the other day, and is really well done. And you should watch it for the archival footage of the Apollo alone. And, um, and you know, like any documentary of a place or a particular thing, there are lots of talking heads. There are lots of different things that you have to try and get in. And transitioning between the various different storylines story lines can be a little bit difficult at times. But part of the reason why I think we should watch it is uh, I've been thinking a lot this summer about what it means to experience or receive or love um, the creative genius of another set of experiences of a group of people outside yourselves. This is especially important in our current world um, where we still are battling with racism 
while the world recognizes that black creative expression is still incredibly valuable and and beautiful right and so the thing that i continue to think a lot about with respect to the church that i serve and the and the community that i'm a part of is um is how do we meet the demands of racial justice in this country um, but where do our sort of our, our racist ideologies find safe harbor and trying to make sure that we're we're attentive to that? And and I have to say that I find that racism in our country has always found some safety and justification and appeals to taste. Which is to say that we think our taste can't be questioned because it's by definition personal. It's it's ours and it's um, without ever considering how it's been handed to us, why we feel the way that we feel. And so we don't ever really examine the ways in which our tastes themselves are, are, um, are funded largely by racist ideologies. Um, and what we don't talk enough about is the ways in which taste is explicitly connected to power and status. A sociologist that I've studied a lot, Pierre Bourdieu, says that taste is capital, right? That that we take it, we take our taste, the things that we like, in order to gain access, and access provides possibility and opportunity. And therefore, we all, all of us, have a vested interest in preserving the economy of our taste where it's more valuable than others. And so to talk about racism in this country and not consider taste is, I think, an incredibly large oversight. And so when we think about how to meet the demands of racial justice in the country, I think lots needs to happen. But among the things that I think is important, not most important maybe, but important nonetheless, is the consideration and appreciation of black creative genius um, that has been born specifically of black experience in a racist country. And white people considering the art and power and creative work of black folks belongs as part of the equation of creating a more just world. Um, considering it not as experts who are going to displace other people who perhaps have better understanding of what's going on, not as critics to tell, you know, to tell a community why it should be better or how they could make it better, but as, as people who receive, as an, as an audience, um, who are receiving the gifts of another group of people. And so there's, there's something to learn about how to receive a gift here. And it, Truly, there's no more important cathedral of black genius in this country than the Apollo Theater. It it is um, it's at the center of Harlem and Harlem, with respect to uh, the the black creative class in this country, is ground zero. Uh, it is the magnetic pole of of it all and has been for a very long time. And the Apollo Theater has been at the center of it. And so, telling the story of black creativity in this country has to tell the story of the Apollo Theater um, because it's the turning, po the still point of the turning world for so much important music, commentary, and artistic expression. And so just being able to sit with it and just receive the brilliance of all of these performances as far back as the 30s um, that happened on that stage, whether it's in the professionals who were there or on the Wednesday night amateur night that has been going on every Wednesday for almost 100 years, um, is uh, it was a real gift. And so I commend it to anybody to go and watch that and participate in it as a way to continue to figure out how to love the creative expression of another group of people. I'm, I haven't seen this. I'm so intrigued by it. It sounds like it might be 
it, it sounds like it merits a longer conversation from us too, because I, 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 I ask this without necessarily wanting to fall into a hole, but I, it, I'm wondering how this conversation helps us think about our own liturgy and our own musical tradition. I, I, it, I think it has to. Yeah. So I, I, I think it has to. And I think that, that we should, we should consider that going forward, especially with, as it relates to taste and the way that people talk about the church music that they prefer. Yeah. I'm really interested in that. Thank you for the recommendation. I'm not going to go check it out. All right, Matt. So last category, what is the other thing that you are reading or watching during the pandemic? So there's an argument to be made that the biggest sequel of the summer was not a movie, um, largely because so many theaters shut down that the sequels didn't really, most of the sequels didn't make it to theaters. The biggest sequel of the summer, in my argument, is a video game. Uh, it's The Last of Us 2, which is the sequel to uh, the original that came out in 2013 from the studio Naughty Dog, which is uh, famous for making the Uncharted series. Last of Us sold 20 million copies. This is real money. My continued drumbeat that, like, these games have huge audiences and we don't talk about them outside of video game journalism. Uh, the Last of Us is set in a post-apocalyptic America is the story of, um, they don't call them zombies, but they are zombies. Uh, it's the story of a, a, a father figure named Joel who loses his daughter in the original outbreak and then um, ends up having to escort a young, a young girl named Ellie across the country through this terrible very bleak, infected landscape. The sequel was a really, really big deal because Naughty Dog is unparalleled in video game development for its character work and its storytelling work. They are doing character development uh, and um, empathy and high-stakes drama uh, and gritty decision-making uh, in a way that um, no one else working for Xbox or PlayStation anywhere is doing. Now, I was a bit late to the party on the sequel um, because there were too many things going on in my life in June when this came out. I knew that there were spoilers out there. Somebody had leaked a bunch of plot points, which in and of themselves were very controversial. And so I saw the game start to have what I would describe as this kind of Last Jedi-esque response online, where the critics loved it and the fan community was really, really divided. Which honestly, and I think this is sort of an interesting effect of Last Jedi discourse, honestly, that just made me more excited about it. I figured mm. something that controversial was bound to have made some really interesting creative decisions. And boy, did they. The game is mm. bleak. It has to, and was always going to be bleak. This is a very, very bleak universe. And I was exhausted by playing it at every moment. But. Mm. And I am going to spoil the game a little bit. So if you don't want to hear it, just skip ahead a couple of minutes. But what this game does that is just remarkable from a narrative craft standpoint is it leads you 12 or 15 hours worth of gameplay down a story which is a story of dark and grueling revenge against uh, a character who you are primed to loathe and whose entire existence you are set out to end and then just at the moment when you think you have reached its climax it stops it goes back in time and it forces you to play as that antagonist for 12 to 15 hours of gameplay and by the time you reach the real end of this game you will have no idea who is the protagonist and who is the antagonist hmm. 
You will have no idea who is good or bad. You will have no idea what you want the outcome of the plot itself to be. And all I knew was that Naughty Dog had done something remarkable. And I really, really wanted it to be over because I was so uncomfortable with the the decisions and the questions that I was being forced to make and to ask. Uh, and that I needed to go watch The Martian a few times to get my head straight. <laughs> and then the next day I went back and played it all the way through again over the course of a couple of weeks because I wanted to see all the craftsmanship at work. So this is the opposite of comfort programming, but man, it is fascinating. So that is the thing that I cannot quite get out of my head right now. Um, Adam, what about you? Well, now I want to, now I'm super interested. Now I'm really excited. I, I don't generally play video games, but, um, but this sounds amazing. It sounds like really exciting. Maybe I'll come to your house for a week and just leave me alone. <laughs> They'll play all of your video games. <laughs> um, so the thing I want to talk about is, um, is Ted Lasso on Apple TV, which I, it's also know. a dark and gritty universe. I get that it's sense also from it. Dark and gritty universe. <laughs> you know, so it it's actually kind of probably the 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 other side, the light side to your shadow side, uh, Matt. The Ted Lasso is a is a TV show that shouldn't work, and by all means shouldn't have been made. Um, it is a character made up by Jason Sudeikis in order to promote Premier League soccer. For NBC Plus, long ago when they had bought the rights to showing Premier League Soccer. And the conceit was that Ted Lasso had been hired as a coach of a premiership team coming from America as a football coach. And because he was a football coach in America, he was thought that he was going to be a football coach in England. But football in England just means soccer. And so that's the like that is the joke. And so he says a whole bunch of cliche football stuff. And then um, and then the group of people in England laugh at him. And um, TV shows that are built off of ads shouldn't work. And they haven't in the past. The yeah. Caveman series, the oh, Geico man. Caveman series. Um, Nick Kroll's starring turn, by the way. Yeah, his, did, his, his rise to power. His rise to power did not work and for good reason. And yet here is this like strange and honestly like incredibly sweet story about a guy who comes to England who's hired and the conceit that gets him there is a little strained but you stop caring about 15 minutes into this because he's incredibly winning and this is where like the people who are making this show and Jason Sudeikis obviously know what they're doing because it, it is a show that is incredibly sweet. It is generous. It doesn't make fun of people. Ted Lasso might be the most generous Southern character in TV right now in that he sort of, he takes the, the best of Southernness, which is a sort of wit, a cleverness, a deep sweetness of a sense of caring and hospitality and grace that you can, and, and embodies all of that in a world that is more in, interested in manners and and or telling him that he doesn't know what he's doing as a soccer coach. And so 
on the one hand, it exemplifies this sort of fish out of water story, but it's one where the American who shows up isn't ugly, but he's really kind and he's industrious and he's charming and utterly without guile, but he's also self-assured and confident. And so he like within the first 10 minutes of the, uh, of the show, you don't ever get the sense that he doesn't know that he doesn't know anything about soccer. He's very confident that he doesn't know anything about soccer. But what he says is, I know about coaching. And so it's a story about someone who loves people into being their best selves and how those people in return then love him into being his best self, even when some things happen in his life that are hard. And suddenly these characters who are all lovely and and like wonderfully wrought, it avoids all of the cliches that you expect it to inevitably fall into and just keeps plugging along as this lovely 30 minutes of charming sitcom, which we don't ever get any longer. There aren't any charming sitcoms. There are ironic sitcoms. There are clever sitcoms. There are sort of brainless sitcoms. There are stereotyped sitcoms, and this kind of avoids all of it to tell a story that shouldn't, by all intents and purposes, make any sense because the premise is truly stupid, and it suddenly and somehow works. And so I've loved it. I I, I loved it, and I like. It's also one of those things where I don't have to convince my spouse to watch it with me, right? Even I'm, though it's ostensibly about soccer. <laughs> I'm excited about this. I watched like the first five minutes or so and it just wasn't the right choice for the moment and I bailed and haven't gone back, but I need to, I, I'm going to push through because I'm, I'm encouraged by what you say. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's not the best show ever made and it's not going to tell you everything you need to know about the human condition, but in this time of pandemic, and this is part of the reason we're doing this podcast, it is a 30 minutes full of a sense of sincerity and hope and that to in the priorities of my life is a lot higher than it has been in times past it's all right adam the best show that's ever been made has already been made it tells me everything i need to know about the human condition and i'll be talking about it next on my avatar the last airbender special edition <laughs> podcast as cheers i thought you were gonna say <laughs> cheers where everybody knows your name all right, folks, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we all got it wrong. We love your feedback, and we're going to be figuring out a schedule for the fall to bring you some new stuff, and we're looking forward to getting back at this. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at SundayMorningMatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, as always, to the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, the penultimate airbender. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.